The train slowed and then ground to a halt with a deafening screech of brakes. It was Thursday morning, May 18, 1944. Since Monday, we had been closed up in a boxcar, crowded together in darkness, filth, and hunger. Our travel companions were tears, anguish, and the terror of the unknown. Now we huddled together and waited apprehensively for the locked doors of the car to be opened. Some of us had expressed the opinion that nothing good could come of traveling in a freight train, in cars that were normally used to transport livestock from Poland to Germany. And I thought to myself that perhaps even the animals were transported in more comfortable conditions than we human beings and that if this was the journey, then what did it say about the place we had arrived at? And even so, I had a faint hope that perhaps the situation would improve for my father, my mother, for my five younger brothers, for me, and the rest of the Jews who had traveled with us in the train. What more could a young girl ask for? I was 15 years and 10 months old, Suri Hershkovitz, from the village of Komyat, which had been part of Czechoslovakia when I was born there, but which had been annexed by Hungary on the eve of the war. We had entered the freight car three days earlier, straight from the Munkash ghetto, which itself had been hell on earth. We didn't yet know that small hells awaited us during the journey towards a larger, ongoing hell. The entrance to the boxcar had no steps, the younger ones climbed up and jumped inside on their own, and the older ones were given a helping hand by those who were already inside. When I got into the car, I was shocked to find that it was filthy and stinking from the cattle that had been transported in it before us. The floor was wet and dirty. It appeared that someone had made an attempt to wash it before we entered, but because they had rushed us in before it had time to dry, the floor immediately became covered with a sticky paste of mud and filth. The first thing we noticed was that the car had no seats. Everyone had to stand, pressed against each other. They told us not to be unruly and to behave ourselves. They explained that the car doors would be locked from the outside and would remain so until we arrived at our destination. Only there would the doors be opened because only there were the people who had the key. Where was there? We didn't know. We had no idea where we were headed. As we were getting on the train, my cousin Shoni Solomon was appointed the commander of the car. I have no idea who appointed him to the position. I only remember that he was responsible. He was 19, from the neighboring village of Bogrovich, the son of my father's sister, Fega. In one corner of the car, children were crying, while in another corner, people were trying to help some elderly passengers sit down on the floor. We were all terribly hungry and tired, which only increased the suffering. Our fellow passengers included mothers who had boarded the train alone with their children. In general, most of the people in the car were women, old people, children, and youths. There were very few men because in those days most young men had been forcibly drafted into the Hungarian army. They were conscripted for hard labor, and after the German occupation they were taken prisoner. 
Thus, in addition to missing them, their families feared for their safety. Altogether in the rail car, we were 84 people, all terrified, strangers to each other. We were a random collection of people facing a common fate. The next thing we noticed was that there was no drinking water in the freight car. We couldn't possibly imagine how we were expected to manage without water to drink. For the first quarter hour of the trip, we all tried to be polite and considerate. Could you please move over a little, was heard from one direction. Please make a little space here, was heard from another. But then it became clear that the car also lacked toilets. We began to lose hope. Half an hour into our journey, the trip had already become torture. My father called out, excuse me, does anyone have a blanket? My father, Jakob Hershkowitz, was 44 years old. Having served as the sexton of the synagogue, he was used to leading the community, and he helped his nephew Shoni take command of the car. The verse from Ethics of the Fathers, in a place where there are no men, strive to be a man, applied to my father perfectly. He proved that even in the most difficult times, a person can show his humanity and help others. Someone rummaged through his belongings and donated a wool blanket. Excuse me, my father called again. Does anyone have a hammer, a nail, a bucket? Somehow or other, without hammer or nails, my father and Shoni managed to hang up the blanket in a corner of the rail car to create a private toilet stall. But what to do with the bucket that was rapidly filling up to overflowing? The bucket has to be emptied outside, said one of the men. Someone suggested climbing on someone else's shoulders, grabbing the full bucket and dumping its contents through the metal bars blocking the window. However, all attempts to dump the bucket of waste outside as the train rushed on failed again and again. Does anyone have a newspaper? My father and Shoni asked, hoping to be able to channel the contents of the bucket outside the window. No one had a newspaper, however, and the car grew filthier and filthier with a horrible stench. The train stopped at stations from time to time, and each time we thought that perhaps we would receive water and be able to get rid of the stench in the car, but the doors remained locked for three full days. Occasionally, the train would wait at a station, sometimes for a short time and sometimes for much longer, perhaps to allow trains to change tracks. At some of the stations, good people who lived in the area were waiting for us, and they would throw us loaves of bread or boiled corn cobs through the bars. Everyone grabbed the food, and it was always gone within minutes. Every time the train stopped at a station, we were all silent, trying to hear what language was being spoken outside, but usually they didn't allow people to come near the cars, so we were left in ignorance. The train journey took place amid sobbing and screaming. People dozed off, standing and sitting. Every once in a while, those standing would change places with those sitting. But there was never a moment of peace or calm in the car. We were constantly trying to guess in which direction we were traveling. We couldn't see the sun or the moon or the stars. It seemed as though all of nature and the whole world was against us. 
The windows were narrow, and when someone lingered near a window, everyone would immediately yell at him to get away from it so he wouldn't block the flow of air for everyone else. One time, when someone nevertheless managed to catch a glimpse of the landscape rushing by, he announced, we're in Poland. My father also looked out the window and confirmed, we're in Poland. It is hard for a person to believe that he is being sent to death for no fault of his own, without any rational reason. The human mind cannot grasp this. This is perhaps why, despite the bone-shaking train journey, we had hope and we were optimistic. When they first dragged us from our homes, the rumor had already spread among the Jews that we were being sent across the Danube River to a place called Donatul, across the Danube in Hungarian, where standing water created black peat. My father and our neighbors discussed among themselves that apparently they were bringing all the Jews to this place so that we would drain the water from the soil and develop an advanced form of agriculture. My father and his friends were sure that we would succeed at the task. Today, I know that during that period, each day, four transports left Hungary, each one with about 3,000 Jews. In total, there were 147 transports carrying about 450,000 Hungarian Jews. In the preceding months, we had experienced anti-Semitism endured suffering and hardships in the Munkash ghetto, and had heard that in Ukrainian villages, Jews had been taken out to pits to be shot. But if someone had told the travelers on our train, listen, most of you will die within an hour of your arrival at the final stop, we would have looked at him as though he had lost his mind. Occasionally, unpleasant clashes occurred during that train ride. One took place when a 14-year-old boy tied his shoes to the window bars by their laces. With the swaying of the train, the shoes came loose from the bars and fell, striking my mother in the face. They were shoes with metal buckles. My mother was struck in the eye and began to cry. My father examined the wound, gave her a handkerchief, and reassured her that the situation wasn't so bad, and that by the next day, any sign of the blow would be gone. But people in the car immediately got up and turned on the boy in anger, wanting to hit him. My father felt sorry for him and tried to calm everyone down and make peace. He said to the angry crowd, let me handle the boy. I know how to educate children. With great difficulty, he managed to stop the other travelers from thrashing the boy, who was the only son of a widowed mother. For the rest of the journey, my father continued to protect him from being hurt by the other travelers. My mother recovered, although her eye remained bruised and swollen. The journey was terrible, beyond description. But no one in our car died. At the end of the journey, we stood, 84 people, nervously waiting for the car doors to open.